Horror on Main, a new weekend convention for the horror community. There are plenty of horror cons to choose from, but most only offer the genre as writers and actors. We explore all the shadows within horror entertainment. From idea to product, there are many people behind the scenes, including writers and actors, but also artists, publishers, directors, and composers, and we're bringing them to you, as well as contests, movies, panels, podcasters, and much, much more. We've been going to conventions for over 20 years and are changing up the little things to make the big picture amazing. Join us Memorial Day weekend 2023 in Hunt Valley, Maryland. Come to the block party and meet your new neighbors. See HorrorOnMain.com for details. The curator of horror, Chance Forshee here, to tell you about Ghost Eaters. Hey everybody, my name is Clay McLeod Chapman and I am the author of Ghost Eaters. Ghost Eaters is all about a haunted drug. Pop a pill, see the dead, but once you start seeing the dead, the dead can see you. That is Ghost Eaters and it's on shelves September 20th from Quirk Books. Wanna get haunted? <laughs> I'm David Demchuk, the author of the experimental queer horror novel Red X. Many readers think queer horror is just for queer people. I'm here to tell you it's not. We have the same dreams. We have the same fears. Red X tells the story of gay men who are being taken from their friends and family by an ageless supernatural being. But it's also my story, and the story of friends that I have lost over the decades. Join me in Red X as we explore my darkest fears together. Red X is published by Strangelight, an imprint of Penguin Random House, and is available at fine bookstores everywhere. An agency that sends social workers into the homes of grieving families to impersonate dead loved ones. The kind old woman who saved a teenager's life, but who now finds herself haunted by the weight of a cheated suicide and the daughter of a candlestick maker as she tries to survive a painful existence after her father's execution for making human chandeliers of drunken cowboys. These stories and more, ranging from supernatural to the frighteningly domestic, splatterpunk to the weird and cosmic, stain the pages of Cut to Care, a collection of Little Hurts by Aaron Dryers. These are stories about caring too much in a world that doesn't always care for you back. Also featuring an exclusive introduction by writer-director Mick Garris, creator of Masters of Horror. Cut to Care by Aaron Dries. A collection of little hurts. Out now. Welcome everybody to Dead Headspace. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello, everybody. To- today, we are joined by the author of a ever-growing li- bibliography, uh, probably best known for The Living Dead, co-written with George A. Romero, 
It's Mr. Daniel Kraus. Say hi, Daniel. Hi. Uh, let's just dive into it, man. What got you into horror? That's an uh, easy question for me to answer. Uh, my mom did. She was into horror. And um, uh, I remember being really young, maybe five years old. Can't be much older than that. And watching scary stuff with her regularly. I think mostly that took, I mean, most memorably for me, that took the form of Twilight Zone, which I think was on every Friday. And so we would watch that together. And a lot of my earliest memories are images from Twilight Zone. Um, you know, that that show is just filled with really memorable visuals. And I, I'm sure I didn't catch all the stories necessarily, but um, a lot of the images really imprinted themselves on me. Uh, and I think, you know, along with that Night Living Dead, which wasn't on, as, you know, as often as the Twilight, Twilight Zone was, but but on a lot, you know, it was one of those movies that, you know, we can go into this additionally if you want, but, you know, one of those movies that wasn't copyrighted correctly. So it was just playing all the time because anybody could play it for free. So between Twilight Zone and Night Living Dead, um, that really started me down the road of liking horror. And that was only possible that that young. That was my dog, by the way. Um, it was only possible that young because she was, it wasn't a scary space. Like she was really enjoying herself and, and laughing and having a good time. And so it wasn't overbearingly frightening to me. Um, and it was, you know, it was a sort of an easy, comforting on road to horror. So I wonder, you know, how much effect you think maybe that had on your writing uh, associating this kind of comfort with scary and uncomfortable things. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think mostly it was responsible for me to be, for me getting to think in that direction as a young kid. Um, it, I certainly, it, it certainly didn't send me towards a, a, a space of writing, you know, cozy horror or something that was sort of friendly feeling. If anything, I think I I hit limits quicker than other people. You know, like I I it was you know it was VHS era, so you had limitations to what you could see. But um, I think I was I was maxing out on what I could handle generally earlier than other people was. So it sort of it I think put me on sort of the advanced <laughs> uh, AP horror track before yeah. my my young colleagues. That's okay. cool. Um, now, your your bibliography is nothing if not varied. Um, you you know you don't feel beholden to uh, one style or even one age audience. Do you think may that 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 played a role in you know interest writing YA and middle grade stuff mm -hmm. is kind of creating that same space for other people? Yeah, you know I the, I, I wish that were true, and maybe it is. Like it, it sounds because it sounds generous you know, that I would want to sort of pass on this feeling I had to other readers. And maybe, and maybe that's true in a way I don't like intellectually appreciate. Um, and I hope that's true, but it, for me, it's more that I just have a lot of ideas and some of them just seem a, a more appropriate here or there. And also I'm really uh, pr prolific and, you know, you can't, 
if you're going to be putting out the number of books that I find myself putting out, it helps that the, the age range is very just in a business type of way. Mm. Uh, you know, if I, if I had five novels out here or four novels like this year, and they were all adult novels or all young adult novels or whatever, it, yeah, it would compete with each other. And a lot of publishers wouldn't even allow it. Mm. Uh, so it's, it also just has sort of naturally evolved as um, on the business side of it, just being able, being able to do as many things as I want to do by mixing up the audience. But I always, you know, I always feel like I'm better off for it mentally, like intellectually, artistically, uh, because each, each type of audience that I write for, whether it's age wise or format, whether I'm doing comics or whatever, they all sort of are a palate cleanser for the, the next thing that I do, or if I'm doing them simultaneously, um, it makes it easier on my brain to switch back and forth because they're so different. Hmm. Yeah. I, that, that's a lot of good reasoning. I like the whole idea of, you know, to, to a degree, this is a stretch, but it's almost kind of like your King versus Bachman. It's, you know, you, you, yeah not necessarily planning to do it, but putting yourself in a position where nobody's saying, Daniel, please stop writing so damn much because we can't, right. you know, sell all these books within a calendar year uh, and just kind of a natural and organic way of, of dealing with that. But, and also to kind of have that, well, I just wrote this, you know, uh, this, this story that's very heavy in one theme. Now I'm going to turn it completely on its head and go in a different direction. I, yeah, I love that. Just, I think that's great. It just, it just, it helps all the books. I think mm -hmm. it helps, you know, writing these different things. Everything is enriched by, um, you know, I'm not writing like super dramatically different genres, but I try to do that as well. I try to mix up at least sub genres, um, pretty vigorously, whether it's historical fiction sci-fi or whatever uh, enough so that also serves that end to sort of constantly be waking me up you know and that's sort of always my goal in writing is to create new problems for myself so that i just don't get stuck in a rut and write 10 books that are all all sort of feel kind of the same you know yep creating new problems. I, I like the way you put that. Uh, Patrick, I'm kind of hogging the mic here, but I want to drop in one more thing before I throw it to you. Uh, because one of our listener questions, I think ties in really nicely with what we're talking about now. Uh, this is from Brian McCauley. And he says, I'm astounded by the breadth of your output. Do you tackle your stories one at a time or have multiple projects in various stages at the same time? Either way, what does your workflow look like? Yeah. I mean, you know, when I started, it was certainly one at a time. Now it's uh, multiple things at a time. Uh, mm -hmm. I, you know, in a given week, I'm probably working on two major projects. Um, and this is just a baseline and this changes week per week. But I usually have an A project, something that's more difficult in some way, heavier, um, denser, involves more research or something. And maybe I'll do that four days a week and then I'll have two days a week that I'll be writing on something else that's maybe a little less challenging in some way, maybe just shorter or something. Um, and that, you know, that fluctuates week to week, but that's sort of a baseline. And then that always gets messed up because there's a million other things going on that would just pop up and, and ruin that nice little 
four to six balance or uh, four two balance. Uh, so yeah, these days, you know, there'll be some days where I'll, t- you know, I'll touch five different projects in one day. Um, oh my gosh. That doesn't mean I'm writing on five different projects, but there'll be something having to do with a whole bunch of projects that maybe I've got a phone call with an editor on one and that's, mm. you know, that's it for one. I gotcha. And then maybe I'm, I'm writing on two different things and then I'm, you know, looking at some art for a comic or a graphic novel, you know, I try to do my heavier writing earlier in the day. Um, and then if I've got a bunch of these other things that are coming in, I'll do that in the afternoon. Gotcha. Uh, you know, I really like how on Twitter, you do not mince words with being a writer um, where you're not, you're not downplaying it where it's, I guess, uh, hopeless that no one can make it as a full-time writer, but you're also not alluding to anything that's uh, false, meaning um, specifically that you really it's it's not common to make enough where you're going to be in a healthy full-time position uh correct me if i'm putting any words in your mouth um but along those lines if someone newer were to listen because your resume speaks for itself now um is there any advice that you want to give to anyone about expectations like realistic expectations so you're not setting yourself up for down the line uh feeling like you didn't succeed yeah i mean success looks you know radically different for everyone um i think there's a really great argument to be made for having a day job um i don't think that there's anything remotely wrong with that in fact i think for a lot of people it actually uh be helpful you know if you're naturally the kind of person who's gonna put out a bunch of stuff you know, and put out, I've got, I have, I've got, I think seven things coming out. So like four books and then like some comics and stuff. <laughs> so that's, you know, that's a lot of different um, potential ways to, to make money and make a living. Um, some of those will be bombs, but every once in a while, one of them will hit that happens. But if you're, if you're, you know, someone who's writing a book a year, a book every two years, uh, if they're not, you know, runaway hits, there's, there's no way you're going to make a living on that. So you're, you're going to want to, um, have a day job. And, you know, I always think that it's best to, you know, maybe have a day job that has nothing to do with the field whatsoever. So you, your mind is really freed up by it. So hmm. I always thought I would love to, have, I never did something like this, but like, just like, like run a bulldozer or something you know, like during the day and then just be able to have my imagination running and then at night and on weekends and holidays and stuff, um, just right. And, uh, I think that that's a fan, you know, a really fantastic and much more rational plan. than um, you know, I would never have started here. It just sort of over time, I just became really productive and that's sort of my happy spot. Um, so I would start with that, you know, I would, my, I am very, I don't consider there anything precious to be about writing. You know, there's a lot of, you know, sort of the Instagram version of writing where you're sitting with your coffee and uh, it looks really pretty and you're 
talking about how, you know, you feel uplifted in some way and it's all rainbows and stuff like that. I consider it more like I just get to work. Mm. You know? Like I would, I'm, I just love writing so much. I'd rather be writing than anything. Um, and if you can really say that, then you're, you've got something going for you, at least even if you're not super talented, <laughs> you know, like it's not like I'm, I'm waiting, um, like dying for the workday to stop. I don't want it to stop. Uh, I'd write seven days a week if I, if I could. And sometimes I can and nights and, you know, there's just nothing I'd rather do. Um, whereas, you know, most people write, most people I know who are writers have a much different way of looking at it. It's, it seems to be much more painful for them. Mm. And, there's, and there's nothing really wrong with that either. Everyone's again, everyone has their sort of own path to get to what they want to create. Uh, but I guess if I'm giving advice, I would, you know, give you some time to figure out what kind of writer you are. Um, and you have to make peace with the marketplace too. You know, you have to understand what kind of things people want to read. Um, and, you know, I, I, I wouldn't suggest ever writing to that. I certainly haven't. Um, uh, I, in fact, I've, I've sort of, particularly in my young adult books, I've written absolutely counter to what people have wanted. Uh, and, you know, that's, it's, it's paid its own dividends over time. Um, but, you know, and I think one of the great, one of the biggest pieces of advice is no one to quit, you know, like that's sort of the anti-inspirational advice, but I would give that advice to anyone who's writing or doing any kind of job, like our artistic pursuit, like, you know, we only have so many years on the earth, you know, and you, I've known people whose lives were kind of ruined by never giving up on a, on a certain dream. Mm. You know, people said never give up your dreams. I, I think sometimes you should really give up your dreams. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and now I think most people, their lives aren't ruined by, you know, chasing their green, dreams of being a big time director or something, but I've definitely seen it happen mm. uh, where it's like, you've got to, you got to be smart and play to your strengths sometimes and learn when it's not going to happen. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I, I want to go all the way back to 2015 when you came out with Troll Hunters with Guillermo del Toro. And then a few years later, you came out with The Shape of Water. Um, I'm sure you've talked about this to death. Is there, is there anything that you can attribute how that relationship started? Well, it started with Troll Hunters, which um, was completely Guillermo's idea. Um, Shape of Water started with me, but um, Troll Hunters started with him. He had, uh, you know, before it was a TV series, he had this book project that he had sold uh, based on kind of like proposals and pages. And at some point decided he wanted a co-author for it. And he had read my book, Rotters, which at that point was not, not that old. Um, and I uh, was a fan of it and thought I would be a good person for uh, Troll Hunters. And so that's how our relationship um, started. And it was great. And Troll Hunters came around right at the right time for me. Um, I had just gotten off of uh, a book called Scala, which is probably my darkest book. Mm. And was really, it was my third book. And um, really my low point, really, in writing. It was, the, it was sort of the opposite of where I am now. Um, whereas 
I'm not saying I'm at a high point, sort of like artistic. I mean, I don't know who am I to say, but I mean, it was a low point in the sense that writing was difficult. Like it, it was, it, it, it was the least fun it, it's ever been. It was the time when I was thinking about giving up. Um, it was, the book was very difficult to write. It was dark. Um, and Troll Hunters was really this gift because it was a lot of fun and um, really brought back some of the, the joy of it. And really, um, although it sticks out among all my books, I think it's the, the book that is least like me in, in a lot of ways. It really did. It was invigorating in a lot of ways and pleasing and just kind of fun. And it kind of got me back on track and really for good, I think. Was it intimidating to have Guillermo ask you to do something with him? Uh, no, not really. Um, it, it, to, to some extent, you know, you, you want to do a good job, you know, uh, that's always the case. Um, but I've, I just, you know, I have this, I don't know what it is, but I don't get, I have this, the, whatever the thing is where you get like starstruck, I just don't have, like, <laughs> it's just, it's just like that part of my brain is dead. Uh, I just can't get starstruck. You know, it just, it just doesn't, it just doesn't happen to me. So it really, it, um, but you know, I, I liked his uh, work a lot. So I was, you know, totally flattered to be even considered. Hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, we, we hit it off right away um, and had a, you know, had a great meeting and had, a, I think, a good, a good time on both the projects. And um, yeah, it was, it was, it was a totally, totally fun experience. Um, and, you know, I, I definitely learned things from him and I'm really grateful for the chance to work with him. That's awesome. Go ahead, Brendan. Very cool. Uh, so I, I want to throw in another question. Um, and this kind of takes us, we, we mentioned uh, Night of the Living Dead and George A. Romero a little bit earlier, but this is from Aaron Dries. Uh, and he says, the Living Dead is one of the finest novels I've read in years. Um, Daniel, I don't know if you know Aaron, but he is uh, an incredible Australian author, really, really excellent writer. Um, but he says that, you know, the book is full of brilliant plot threads throughout and he wants to know who is your favorite character in the book and why. And when you look back on the whole Romero collaboration process, what's your most gratifying memory? Favorite character. Um, I've got the book right over here. It's a behemoth. It is. It's huge. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's my longest single volume book. That's awesome. Um Favorite character. I remember when this book was fresh in my mind, I would, I would tend to say, um, uh, the, the, the archivist, the, uh, Etta Hoffman, who was, um, sort of the one who was collecting everyone's stories kind of existed most in the interludes. Uh, yeah, I liked, I liked her a lot. Um, she was somebody who's kind of on the spectrum and, and somebody who really kind of came into her element when society broke down because she didn't really like interacting with people and was more comfortable alone. And uh, so I think her arc is really interesting and I liked that a lot, but you know, I really liked all the major characters. Um, 
most of them were Romero's uh, were characters he he began. Um, some of them weren't, um, but you know, even the ones that he, he created, uh, I found inroads into them that made them sort of personal to me, and uh, really, really liked all. I mean, it's it's hard to write a book that long without, you know, if I had a major character that I couldn't stand, that would be difficult, <laughs> or I would find a way to kill them off early. I guess. <laughs> Um, as far as like memories of like what, what was nice about the project, so many things. Um, I, you know, I really treasure all my interactions with Sue's, his wife, um, you know, our, one of the initial steps I took was to go up to Toronto and just talk to her for a while and learn as much as I could about George, and his personality and philosophies and kind of just the way he lived life and, and also with the way, you know, the way he died, you know, sort of what, what was important to him in his last months and weeks and days. Um, and she was so open to me. Um, that was all really gratifying. Um, I think when I finished the book and she read it, I was very nervous about her. reading. It. Um, and just, she just loved it. And that, you know, not having George around to say good job, kid. Um, that would have been great, but the, the next best thing I had was Sue's. So to get her stamp of approval on it, uh, meant a lot. Hmm. Um, so yeah, it was all along the, the, the path of writing it. Um, there was, there weren't very many down spots for me. It was all, every step was so difficult, and, but so gratifying. Um, you know, it, I can't think of any other project where I was, was so happy and excited to work on it every single day. That's awesome. Um, every step of every draft. I mean, I just, I could have kind of worked on it forever. I mean, you're part of, you're part of, uh, you're my, he's one of your most influential uh, creatives. I know that. And he's mine yeah. too. Him and Kevin Smith are the guys that I looked up to when I was growing up. And you're part of that canyon, a canyon, not canyon, part of that canyon. Part of the Romero canon. And that's, uh, I don't know how you would be able to digest that even now. No, I can't really, you know, even, even, you know, after the book came out and now you, as you might have seen, there's a, there's a second book. Um, yeah, it doesn't, it still doesn't make sense to me most of the time. Like it, he, he was the, the reason I got into all this when I was really, really little, um, and so to be a part of something that kind of fin closes that circle of you know, the first movie I really remember seeing is it's just an impossible. It's an impossible thing. Like it, it's impossible that it happened. Um, I'll never really fully understand it or be able to appreciate it enough. It's just, it's strange to me even now. Like the people even with the doorstop in your hand, it's surreal. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't make any, it, it still, there are moments where, you know, just looking at this, it just doesn't make sense to me. Like, how does this exist? <laughs> Your name right under Romero. <laughs> I know, it doesn't, it really doesn't make any sense. It, it, mm -hmm. it boggles my mind constantly. It's funny, because what you're saying about George, uh, John Skip, when he did his, um, his, his uh, anthology in the, 
what was that, the late 80s? Uh, Brennan. I mean, a lot of anthologies. No, the, the Living Dead one. The, oh, um, oh, yeah. Uh, that's the, right. the Book of the Dead. That's it. Oh, yeah, yeah. That one. And then uh, Jonathan Mayberry, when he was talking about when he first met Romero and became friends with him, they both talk about him the same exact way as you do. Like, yeah. he he's just, he's one of, you know, uh, one of us. But at the same time, it's like, dude, you created, without him, think about it, without him, there's a whole lot of stuff yeah. that wouldn't exist, including Shaun of the Dead, which I absolutely adore. And uh, I don't know, man, he inspired a lot of artists still. Um, yes. I think, you know, of all the, the major like American horror directors, you know, there's so much to be said for, you know, this kind of core handful of them. But I think Romero is the only one you can say that really. I mean, yet. The idea that he like really sort of created the idea of the zombie. Nobody else can. I mean, who can say something like that? Like uh, such a big, a monster. I mean, that's like being up there with like Mary Shelley or something like coming up Mm -hmm. with uh, a deathless creation that, that people will be using. Yeah. And not just something that's repurposed from like, you know, ancient lore and uh, you know, folk tales from, (laughs) yeah, that's, that's really something. And, you know, uh, one thing that really struck me is, uh, you know, you said that you, <laughs> the, the part of your brain that gets starstruck doesn't, you know, doesn't function like everybody else's. Um, but at the same time, there was that sense of nervousness to hand this over to mm. Romero's widow and say, did I yeah. do good enough? Did I pay tribute to the man? And I can't think of a better, a bigger yes than the fact that they asked you to come back and work on this next project, pay the piper. Um, Congrats, what, by the way. Can, <laughs> um what what can you tell us about that? About uh, Pay the Piper? Piper. Yeah, um, not too much. Um, I mean, the backstory is that um, when I was, I believe that when I was still working on Living Dead, uh, the University of Pittsburgh was kind of gathering all of his archives to create the George A. Romero uh, collection, and uh, they just had boxes and boxes of stuff that were coming in from his wife, his kids, his production partners, just from everywhere. And sort of the uh, librarians were kind of logging what was there um, and not in a value type way, just sort of like, this is the title of this, this is the title of that. And I got permission um, to come look at everything. And I was the first person, um, aside from the librarians doing the work, to, to see any of it. And uh, with, with no real purpose in mind, I just wanted to see it. I wanted to see um, what was in there. And largely it's scripts and treatments, um, some complete scripts, some incomplete um, treatments that are enormous, treatments that are one page, hundreds of things. Um, so fascinating to see. Uh, and then one of the very final boxes I found um, another book it was crazy uh it was called pay the piper and there was about 350 pages of it that he had written and um and i had to just not talk about it for years uh for various reasons it just kind of took a while to get all of our um 
you know, permission sort of squared away and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I started work after I had permission from the, the family. I started working, I mean, like three years ago. Um, and then I had to kind of put the brakes on and kind of wait for these sort of business type things to happen. Um, so I've been thinking about it for quite a long time. Um, it's, it's, um, what can I say about it? It takes place in the, the bayous of Louisiana. Um, it involves this swamp town called Alligator Point. Um, and the denizens there who, uh, it's a very, very small town where everyone sort of travels on foot or little, little skiffs, little boats. Um, and their town is kind of slowly f- being flooded and, uh, they're all, you know, most of the people there are descendants of, um, the pirate, this famous pirate Lafitte who, um, who, uh, is a real, a real, uh, person. And so a lot of, he's sort of a, you know, a very fascinating, complicated character who lived um, down there and did some sort of good things, but mostly was a terrible person. Um, and there's, there's a kind of swamp. I'm, I'm going to call it a swamp God for now. And that's upset with something that happened in the past in Alligator Point and is starting to kind of wreak havoc on uh, the children. So in a, in a way, there's a little slight element, now that I say it aloud, of Nightmare on Elm Street, where there is this sort of, the children are being punished for things that um, their parents, not, not their parents really in this case, but their sort of ancestors did. Mm. Um, but there's also an element that reminds me of it in the sense mm. that that uh, this, this creature uh, appears as different things to different people. Um, so as I'm, as I'm kind of rambling, you can tell I don't, I don't really have a, my pitch down good for this, uh, but it's a really unique setting and is the, the best like pure writing that Romero ever did. Like it's wow. the prose is so, so good. It's saying something. Um, now I'm not saying like, I, I can't evaluate it against his script. I mean, there are two different books and scripts are a different kind of thing. Okay. But as far as like, like the 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 depth and like uh, beauty of his writing, this was his uh, pinnacle, I think. Um, and you could tell he was just passionate about it. And very few people, um, almost nobody that I've found has ever even heard of it. You know, he, he did ever. It was like a secret project, really. Oh my God. <laughs> um, and. I don't know what happened to it. You know, with living dead, it was a different thing. It was like, he, he had written, he had tried to write the book once and then 10 years passed and he tried again. And there are little bits and pieces that I sort of found ways to incorporate and bridge together. Um, with pay the pipers really just, he hardcore wrote this novel and got to what feels like about halfway and just stopped cold. Um, so really my role and this one's kind of different. Um, it's to write the second half of it, more or less. Um, and I still have to do the process that I did in The Living Dead, which is meld our voices together. You know, like it's important. It doesn't sound like someone new is writing the second half. So 
um, the living dead, I sort of worked on his prose until I had sort of a hybrid of what our writing sounds like when it's mixed together. And then once I had that, I could use that to write new stuff. And that's what I'll, that's what I've been doing with pay the piper is um, figuring out what the pay the piper author or authorial voice is, um, which would be a combination of our writing, and then using that to write the second half. Um, but so I didn't. Unlike the Living Dead, he left no notes or anything for this. It's just like it just cuts off cold. But there are lots of really fascinating clues in the manuscript that I've. There are a few mysteries that I've solved that um, I just got really lucky in solving. Like, he'll make some off, you know, like there's like there's names of characters that I looked up and realized they were referencing something, you know, that clearly he knew he was going to connect this later, but didn't. Um, and some of those were like, oh, this name actually translates to this, which means he was talking about this which references this movie here. And if I watch that movie, that, that makes you realize, oh, he was really talking about this actor in this movie who had a different, who uh, <laughs> used to call his cancer by this weird term. And that made me realize, oh, this book is kind of about cancer. And so there's like this domino effect of like um, research that um, where if he was just here, I just asked him, what the hell are you writing? Yeah. <laughs> but I'm having to, play detective and figuring out what where he was going with this and i think i've i've you know just like with the living dead i my theories are only theories but i think i've developed a pretty good idea of where he might have been heading. i i I wish i wish brandon sanders sorry to cut you off i wish brandon sanderson was here right now so we can compare and contrast how he took on robert jordan's wheel of time and how you took on because they're both in my opinion those both way the same with their fanfare and with the importance of finishing this with both respect and the melding of the voices. I'm really curious to see if, if he, he would have had similar uh, experiences. You know, that's, that's a really interesting point. I've, I've never read about, cause I haven't read those books. I've never I, read his opinions or, or his interviews on like how he did it. Um, but I should, you know what, man? Yeah. That's uh that's it. I wish you came up with that question. <laughs> that, would, yeah. that, could, that could help you answer some uh, of your own because, I mean, he had to take on two books. Plus, it was uh, given to him by uh, Robert's wife, which mm-hmm. there's a lot of parallels there is all I'm saying. And uh, Yeah, yeah. I'm going to look. I'm going to look up. I'm sure he's spoken extensively on it. So I'm, I need, I'm sure I need, yes. to, I need to read some of that stuff. And he also wears glasses. <laughs> what? <laughs> Deja vu, man. Um, <laughs> Brennan, I cut you off to ask that stuff. Go ahead. Oh, sir. No, that's that's okay. That was a, that was a really good point. I'm glad you uh, cut me off to make it. Thank um, you. I, I was just gonna say I love the setting of like you know Louisiana, East Texas Bayou. I think it's an underutilized setting. Yeah. With you know, in terms of isolation and in terms of. Uh, a lot of times the people in the villages and the towns there will be kind of disconnected from society. Mm -hmm. And just so automatically you've got like kind of gears that turn a little bit differently than the audience expects. And then as soon as you add like, you know, the comps of it and a little bit of a little dash of nightmare on Elm street, like I, 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 that's, that's a day one purchase already. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I, I totally agree. It's an underutilized area. 
that is inherently kind of creepy and mysterious. Like there's all there's all sorts of creatures skimming around in the in the bogs. Yeah, children of the uh, corn vibe too. Yeah, I can see that. Um, Brennan, I kind of want to ask him the last question. Um, do you mind if I take that one? Oh, I didn't. Know. Oh, yeah, go for it. So this, this one's by uh, Chance Forshee. He is a pod, fellow podcaster. Um, he is <laughs> more of a jokey one, but I do want to see how you answer it. He said, who wins in a street fight? The ghosts that ate us versus uh, Ghost Eaters, which is by Clay McLeod uh, Chapman. Yep. So, <laughs> whatever you want to say, man. Well, <laughs> I wish if the world were like a little, just a little more normal, I, I could have done some events with Clay. We could have taken our awesome. ghost books on the road. Um, unfortunately, I haven't read Ghost Eaters. I, I had a chance to read it, you know, way early, and I just my schedule, my reading schedule is just it's usually dominated by research books. Um, so I still haven't read it. Um, so, but I'm gonna go ahead and say I'm gonna I'm gonna win the fight. <laughs> <laughs> my book, so why not? Yeah, definitely should be biased for that one. It. Yeah, Brady. Uh, you know what? Perfect segue because I want to go into the ghost that ate us. Um, so, Daniel, I wonder if you could kind of kick us off with like a little bit of back cover synopsis for uh, anybody who is not sure, sure what this book is about. Yep. Okay. It looks like this. Ghost that ate us. And you can see that the subtitle is The Tragic True Story of the Burger City Poltergeist, um, which is quite a mouthful and a weird title. Uh, this is one of my favorite books I've written. Uh, definitely like top four. Um, it's a very peculiar, unusual book. It's written, it's supposed to be written as if, and it is written, as if it's a nonfiction account of a real event. Um, so I set it up saying that you've probably already heard of it. And I, you know, it's, I use photographs and footnotes and captions and all these things that really make it feel real, like you're reading a nonfiction book. And that from what I've gathered, most people reading it, spend a little bit of time Googling they, their first starting because it's it, it, it does seem so real that it seems like a news story that probably came and gone, came and went, and you forgot about it. And that's the whole premise of it is that me, Daniel Krause, is going to write the definitive book on this kind of pop cult, this event, this supposed paranormal event that popped into our pop culture in 2017 and then kind of went away and we all forgot about it. Um, but the people who were involved with it did not forget about it. They were completely ruined by it. And so I've, I'm going to Iowa and interviewing all of them to figure out what really happened, which of course is all fictional, but um, feels very real. And the, the idea is that there's a poltergeist that um, occurred, an event that occurred for one year at this fast food joint called Burger City, which is just this crappy little regional franchise um, location that was off Interstate 80 in Iowa, right? The same kind of place where I grew up. And at first, you know, the poltergeist manifests as they often do in accounts as uh, something really harmless. Like there's the Burger City has a little cardboard uh, mascot and every day at 4, 428, I think, maybe it's 430, it, it hops for a few minutes and nobody can figure out 
how it's happening and people start coming to the restaurants, take videos of it and become sort of this little fun viral moment. Um, but the people who work at Burger City, uh, you know, they're, they're sort of, they're working a pretty crappy job and they're, some of them are about to graduate and move on, but some of them aren't. Um, and they're sort of stuck in this nowhere town at, at this crappy job. And suddenly this poltergeist seems to promise a way out. Um, like it's, it's starting to make them sort of locally famous. Um, and then a little bit beyond locally famous. Um, and they think, well, maybe this is the start of something big. Um, and it's kind of fun for a while. And then it starts tearing them apart um, and becoming not so fun as it becomes a joke to the rest of the world. Um, but it's not at all funny to them. And so it's, it's a book that is sort of absurd and a little comic, particularly in the first half. Um, but goes downhill fast in the second half when it stops being um, sort of lures you in with the silly idea of a fast food ghost. And then sort of right when you think it's all fun and games sort of gets kind of serious. Um, and it was just like I said before, I like to give myself new problems when I write and writing something in this format was a completely new challenge. Um, you have to, I'm writing more sort of objectively as if I'm a journalist and with less um, a voice, you know, it, it reads more like a, a nonfiction account. Mm. Uh, I, I really like this book. I think it's, um, it's a tricky book. I think it's uh, a book that kind of, kind of will sneak up on the reader. And um, it was just a fun thing to write. It was, it was tough because as a nonfiction, you know, if this is a real event that happened and you're a nonfiction writer, you're going to have all your information at the front. You've already done your research and you're going to write your book. So to, to emulate that, I had to know everything that happened before I started writing. And so it involved a few months of preparation. So I knew, you know, the, the, all the events that were going to occur right down to like what the work schedules were, like he was working, what shift. <laughs> On what That's, day? Wow. Um, and then who all the relationships, you know, everyone's relationship with everyone else who are there. Because um, as a nonfiction writer, you want to be able to have, you would normally have all that stuff at your fingertips. So I needed to do all that work up front. So then I could just report upon it rather than write like a normal would. Wow. <laughs> um, I love the way you described it as kind of, luring you in with you know this these uh, almost silliness but yet you're right there's there's a lot of very very human drama and tragedy at the core of it uh it's it's um almost deceptive you know where the story goes um and i i think it's very very brilliantly done uh i will tell you you know without spoiling anything I love the last chapter. I, I think that just taught that put such a nice bow on the way this book comes together. Um, just, I don't, I, I don't think you could have possibly wrapped it up any other way. And of course, you know, obviously you had that kind of planned. Yeah. Um, but the footnotes I think was also kind of a nice touch so that you, you know, get a chapter two in as, as a reader and you're like, wait a minute, this is, this is fiction, right? It says it's fiction. It tells me it's fiction, but it doesn't. Um, 
I, I really loved even like down to uh, name dropping Jennifer Barnes at Raw Dog Screaming um, <laughs> inside the book. I thought all those were such nice touches um, to just really immerse the reader completely in the illusion. Now, I have what I hope is a stupid question. Is there uh, burgers? Is there a burger city, an actual burger city in Iowa? No, there's okay, no, I didn't think there, there is no burger city. Well, there actually is a restaurant called Burger City about an hour from me that I found on Google. Um, but yes, um, there are there are burger <laughs> there are individual burger cities that exist in the world, um, but there's no like uh, yeah. Midwest chain called Burger. Well, the the reason I ask that is because I uh, I noticed that you name dropped Burger City in Bent Heavens, um, and I wonder if that was just kind of a throwaway line that you developed earlier or if this book has just been sitting up there in your head for a long time yeah it's it's, it's the latter um when i was working on bent heavens i was i was kind of hoping to write ghost of datas and i was kind of i'm always planning other things while i'm writing and so that was more of a, a in joke for something else that didn't exist yet but i hoped <laughs> would exist um and now it exists <laughs> so now it's a reference that actually means something that's, that's cool. awesome uh, and and I would throw out, you know, uh, that's uh, Ben Heavens is such a cool book. I, uh, I I don't hear nearly as many people talking about it as I wish would. Um, I'd, I'd love it to death. And it's just so uh, th there's th there's a part in it where you just, you know, flip the reader on their head. Yeah. Um, and any, anybody who says I, I saw that coming. No, you're lying. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's got it's got one of the, probably the biggest twist I've ever. Mm. Um, sorry, man, go ahead. I want to jump to Blood Sugar because that's a book sure. of yours that really I love. Quick, before we jump there, can I? I want to throw one more about the the ghost that ate us, if you don't mind. Um, now, I heard you talk about the the writing process for this was nine months, which was um, a little bit longer than you know you typically go on um once you kind of got the whole outline um in 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 shape how much how much of that time how long did it take you to actually write it you know you talked about kind of tweaking the voice so it almost didn't have one it had that journalistic tone uh well it's always hard to say because i'm working on multiple things um and then i'll sometimes have to stop on something to do like a a draft or a polish and stuff. So it's always a little hard for me to say. Um, but it doesn't feel like it was super much longer than normal. Like I would think that maybe the first draft took maybe four or five months. Um, that's just a guess. Uh, but it was never, you know, because it was so planned out, it, it always moved pretty smoothly. Mm. Um, it, if there was any struggle, it was really, um, you know, knowing when to jump back and forth in time, you know, because there's sort of like one time frame is back in 2017 when it's all happening. The other time frame is present day, which is 2020 in the book, um, where I'm interviewing the people and explaining what how they're living now. And so balancing the back and forth of that was was probably difficult, but otherwise it did feel like I was just sort of reporting on an event. And that that moved pretty pretty smoothly hmm. um do you ever outline oh yeah 
I outline massively. Um, I do a lot of my plot work ahead of time. Mm. And it, you know, I think when people say they, they do outlines, it always makes, I think some people think that that kind of robs the spontaneity of it, but I kind of think it's the opposite. Like when I have, you know, after I've spent all this time hitting sort of the major plot beats, it totally frees me up to uh, just kind of go wild with the writing. Like I can just, I can write it however whack, in whatever wacky, weird, bizarre way I want to, because I, I sort of know the next point on the road and on the mm. way there, I can just freak out. Um, so I think on a sentence level, it's really freeing. Um, and you know, there's always points where you jag off the path and things don't go as you, as you planned. Um, I'm right there with you, man. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, you get better at it too. Like, uh, early outlines probably were just, you know, smashed to smithereens by the end. But these days I have a better sense of it and my outlines I can stick to pretty well but sometimes those outlines take months to do mm-hmm. and some i mean some of my outlines my bigger books the outlines themselves are the size of books like my zebulon finch project which is enormous <laughs> um the outline for that was like 250 pages <laughs> no that was holy shit research heavy <laughs> project mm-hmm. but um yeah these aren't these aren't dashed off i spend tons of time on them that's awesome, man. Uh, that's good to know because I hear a lot of uh, people saying the other end of the coin, the other side of the coin with outlines, and I, I personally like them. Um, well, I mean, that well, you were wanted to talk about blood sugar, like that's an example of one that let's hear it. <laughs> uh, where I sort of, I sort of did it the other way. Oh, um, like I had some sense of you know where things were going. Um, but one of the experiments of that book was sort of abandoning um, the outline. Uh, and, you know, it was a project that I was writing, even though it's my easily my smallest book, it, I probably worked on it almost longer than any other book because I did it between other projects. Mm-hmm. So I'd always kind of go back to it and just sort of free write. And it was sort of this nice thing I had in the background that, was just really weird, not like anything else that I had done. And um, I'm glad you like it because it's one of my top like two books of mine that I've uh, written. I just absolutely love it. It's sort of like the the connoisseurs <laughs> uh, book of of the Daniel Krauss <laughs> bibliography. Um, I loved it. it. I didn't like it. I loved it, man. It's it's not for everyone, even mm. if, even rough fans of mine. It's it's a it's a rarefied taste. Um, but I just absolutely love it. It was, uh, so much. That's another one where I could have just, maybe the Romero book for, for sort of personal reasons, I could have written forever and blood sugar. I mean, I probably, I worked on that tiny little thing probably like six years between projects. And, um, I could have, I never got sick of writing and rewriting that book. It was just so much fun to write in that voice. You know what you did, and I told you on Twitter, and it's it's on your book that it's compared to uh, Clockwork Orange. But I, one of my very best friends in the whole world, gave me that book one day, and said, "Here, borrow this book. 
you'll love it. And I was like, all right. And I was reading it and I, it was so weird. It's so bizarre. It's like learning or reading Tolkien for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I compare it to Silmarillion where, man, there's a lot of stuff that I think are going over my head, but as I'm reading it, I'm like, this is making sense. It's way different than anything I'm used to reading and I can't stop reading it. Like if you were to go back to that world, I would love it. Um, you can get away with different things or rather shine a different kind of light on old topics. Like the, the story is incredibly tragic for pretty much every character. Yeah. And you can't, the people you can really blame are the parents, but at the same time, the drug addicts. And it's like, at what point, (laughs) at what point can you say like, this is ultimately your fault? I mean, it is, but at the same time, it's just, there's so much tragedy with everyone. And, um, one thing that sticks out is that the clerk says, I literally cannot understand what you were saying to me. And as funny as his choice of words is, I thought it was kind of really sad because like, I'm just thinking, well, I mean, what if that is a little boy? And as the dad in me is just like, that is so incredibly tragic. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a great line to pull out. That's one of my favorites. Um, Yeah. That's that encapsulates a lot of what the book is about. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's, it's such a strange book. It is so like unrelentingly tragic, but it's also my funniest book. (laughs) Yeah, It Uh, is funny. Like it's always funny, but it's like funny about just terrible things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I just really love it. I don't think there'll ever be anything like a sequel. I don't think it's popular enough, um, but yeah, man, I just, I just am so fond of that weird little book. We had Charles R. Day on, or our die. I think he said, Oh, that's cool. And uh, I'm pr- I probably did talk about it, but it was really, it's just going through the catalog of books that they have on, um, what a guy to work with because he he's just, he's so not that other publishers aren't, but his passion for this one niche yeah. in books is really cool. And the cover too, that uh, they chose for yours is just really, really neat. It's very different from, it fits in with the rest, but it's just so different, man. That type of art, it just isn't around anymore. No, we had a a, uh, a lot of trouble with that cover because uh, it's probably the least hard case crime book on the entire. <laughs> they published like two hundred books, and it's and I love Charles for publishing it, and hmm. you know he knew that it was the biggest stretch he'd ever made as far as a, a book they would publish under their line. Um, but he just loved the book, so he just found a way to make it happen. But we couldn't figure out how to illustrate it because all of his books have a certain style, and um, none of the characters lent themselves to that style. So we had to kind of get creative. Um, but we came up right against the the deadline. Like we we went through so many different cover sketches, and none of them were, were working. Who uh, thought of making it the calendar from? The uh, I think I think that was Charles. Did you write that in after or did? Oh, no, the calendar was the calendar was in the book, um, I think. But once we had the art, I, I think I did change the text a tiny bit um, so that it matched the, the cover art. Mm, that's smart. I think, it was, I think it was maybe just a random calendar before. <laughs> so the, the deadlines worked out that we were able to sort of nod towards the cover a little bit. Hmm. Um, 
I want to talk one more thing about Romero because you're the person that, and again on Twitter, that pointed this out. Um, his movie that I don't know what happened to it, but now it's out in the public on Shutter, the amusement park. I'm going to be checking that out. Yeah. Hopefully in a few days. Um, did you hear about it through through like his estate or how how did you hear yeah. about it? So this was a movie he made in the 70s. It was a work for hire um, to uh, show the sort of problems of being elderly in, in American society, mm. the difficulties. And so he was paid to do it. He took a week. He, he shot this movie. In, in a week? I think, I think it was shoot, this shoot this shit. week. Wow. Um, I mean, it's a short movie. It's only 50 minutes, 50. Um, so it's not super long. And it was a work for hire. Now, why they hired George Romero for this, I'll never quite understand. <laughs> and he, he turned in just something that was, they probably, I mean, it was something to be shown at like senior centers and stuff. And he turned in this just absolutely trippy, nightmarish uh, movie that I think, along with Night of the Dead, is like one of the scariest things he's ever done. Oh, wow. Because um, I think generally Romero's movies aren't super scary. Like they're, they've got other things going on, but usually his movies aren't. Their primary goal is not to scare you. There's, that's sort of a secondary thing that he does. I think with Night of the Dead, he was trying to scare you. And I think with amusement park he is and i had read the only known reference to the amusement park that i knew of was there's this academic book that was that a guy named tony williams had written maybe in the late 80s maybe early 90s um and he mentioned he met at the very end of the book he mentions it like somehow he saw it and so it was always in my head that i knew that there was this strange missing Romero movie that no one, but this one guy had ever seen. <laughs> um, so it seemed almost like a myth hmm. and, uh, but it was about old people and with the living dead. When I started working on that project, the, the last act of the living dead was sort of about old people and hospice care and that kind of thing. So when I met um, Suze, Romero's wife, I asked her, uh, boy, it'd be really helpful if I could see the amusement park does anyone have any idea what happened to it and she was like yeah we just found it and <laughs> i couldn't believe it wow um so they had recently found a print of it uh and she let me see it um and so suddenly i had this input about george and you know his thoughts on um old people at the, at the perfect time and so after i saw it i started like um talking about it and tweeting about it. And that's when the, I think the general world became aware of it um, mm. because I was posting like still frames from it. And it was just like a George Romero film. And people were just like, what in the hell is this? Um, and it was mind blower. I think it's a wonderful movie. It's really, really good. Um, and the idea that it was missing for 50 years or something, it just boggles my mind. The poster's super creepy too. Yeah, it's yeah, it is. Everything about it is is cool, and it's 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 been on Shutter the whole since it came out, and um, I think it's coming out on Blu-ray in October. I think. Oh, so everyone will have a chance to see it. I'm definitely gonna check it on Shutter. That, that's gonna be my next Shutter movie. Uh, Brennan, 
Take it away, sir. Oh, yeah. Before we uh, wrap up, there's there's one more thing that I've got to ask you about. You have a book coming out, I believe, next year called Whale Fall. And it, yes. the premise of this book is just so damn intriguing. Yeah. Uh, tell us about it. Yeah. Whale Fall is my favorite book that I've ever done. It's um, It comes out next summer. And it's about a diver who uh, gets swallowed by a sperm whale and has one hour to get out. And it's like the perfect high concept idea. Like I was talking to someone else about how, you know, you can ask me about the Gostaredas or other things I'm working on. And I'll kind of ramble on for a couple of minutes about what it's about. But whale fall, you can, you can sum it up in one sentence and everyone gets it. Uh, and it's so cool. I, I wrote it um, with the help of a bunch of like the, the top whale scientists um, in the world. And they were with me every step of the way to make sure it was absolutely scientifically accurate as much as humanly possible. Oh, wow. um, so it's like, in that way, it's sort of like the Martian, you know, in, in the sense that it's, it's really accurate and feasible. Like every step of it is, um, has been, has been vetted. Uh, so yeah, it is possible. Um, although there's no, we have no reliable records that this has ever happened to anyone in history. It's possible. Sounds if fucking you, terrifying. <laughs> oh, oh, it's so terrifying. Um, but it's a weird book. It's also quite moving and sad. And, um, you know, it, it does that kind of thing that was it called 127 hours? The one with mm, yep. Franco and the, the rock. Yeah, yeah. Yep. It has some elements of that too, where it's, it's like, you're in the, the moment and he's got 60 minutes of air to try to get out of this whale using only what's inside the whale. Um, but you're, you're getting this sense of what got him there. And um, he's sort of, he's injured and he's hallucinating and he's starting to think that the whale is his father. Um, the reason he got swallowed, he was out there looking for his father's remains. His, his, his father had killed himself by throwing himself off a boat. So he was looking for his bones. Um, and so he starts thinking the whales talking to him. Uh, so there's a lot of things going on. Um, but man, what some of these whale experts came up with, you know, cause I just basically came to them and said, what, what would you do? What, what were some of the things that you would do to try to get out of this whale? And some of the, the ideas they had were just tremendously strange and delightful, <laughs> uh, and disgusting and creative, um, it's such a cool book. Uh, it's just my favorite thing I've done. And I've got all this whale paraphernalia now. Like I've got this, this is a, uh, it, it's a replica. I don't think it's even legal to have a whale tooth, but this is a, a replica of a, a sperm mm -hmm. whale tooth. Um, so this plays a part uh, when he gets in the, in the mouth. Uh, <laughs> and I've got some other junk over here. But I'm, yeah, I'm super into this book. Um, I can't wait for it to come out. It's really, really neat. Now, yeah, forgive me if you mention this, but uh, you know, I don't, a lot of if you if you talk belly of the whale, you know, a lot of people are going to picture Pinocchio and this big cavernous yeah. thing. But isn't one of the facets that oh, the, uh, a sperm whale's stomach is actually going to be very small? Isn't that yeah. right? And yeah. So I mean, relatively you, you must have played with claustrophobia a lot. Yeah, yeah. It's like a sperm whale's stomach is like being in a elastic sleeping bag. Uh, so it's very, very tight, um, but it's elastic. So you can kind of push out against it. Um, but it's not like you're in a room. You're like, you're, you're squeezed up 
And it's, you know, it only gets worse. The news only gets worse from there because whales don't chew with their teeth and jaws. They chew with their stomach. Um, these are just from grabbing onto you in the water. Um, you know, they're sort of backward hooked. So you're coming in this way and you can't get out, but they chew with their stomach. So the, um, they're, you're getting crushed by like massive amounts of power, like bone crushing power. Plus the pressure of all the water above it right man i'm sure that has something to do with it yeah i mean if, if the that's another one of your many problems is if the whale dives uh you know like if this is the amount of the canyon that you know this is the surface of the water the whale can go all the way down to the bottom of the canyon oh my God. but you can only get about this far before your your head implodes uh so if it if it starts going down your eyeballs are going to pop out. Your head's going to explode. Like, it's all bad. There's no, there's no upside to being in the oil. At best case scenario, you somehow get shit out with the, you know, you can't even survive that, right? Yeah, that that's probably not going to happen. Uh, <laughs> You'll have to read the book, Patrick. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do want to jump in and, and show you that uh, this was made by a Scott. Was he from Sweden, Brennan? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I just commented on it when we had him on our show. His name is uh, Henrik Nelson. And I think the guy's a goddamn genius. And he does creature art. Um, cool. This was this is Moby Dick. Uh, wow. It's really, really good shot class, but it's really detailed. Um, yeah, that's great. I just had to point that out. He's super good. Uh, did you I'm going to put you on the spot. Did you read Heart of the Was it Heart of the Sea or see the uh-huh. movie? Yeah, I've seen. Yeah, I've uh, I've read, read and seen uh, that. I've um, two of the Avengers are in it. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's true. <laughs> um, I've uh, you know read Moby Dick. I've done. I've did a lot of research. Um, you know, I've got all my books right here. They're sort of in a pile, but um, I've got these giant books that are really for scientists that are just like pictures of dissected whales so I could get a sense of what the guts look like. Mm. Me, uh, me and Brennan grew up near an area that is well known for whale and uh, well was uh, New Bedford. Um, now it's just a scary city. It's, I mean, I'm sure it was lovely back in the 1800s or 1700s, whenever it was, but nowadays uh, it's not a nice place to be in. <laughs> well, whale falls set in Monterey Bay. Okay. Um, where there are uh, sperm whales. Um, and I had a diver out there, a scuba diver, um, do the exact dive that's in the book and, and tape it. So he's like an underwater videographer. Mm. So that was nice because usually when you're writing, you don't have um, footage of exactly what you're writing. But in this case, up until the moment he gets swallowed, of course, I had a second by second video of what I'm writing about, which is really unusual and helpful. How, how do you even come across like scientists in that field? Well, I didn't know either, but I knew one person. There's a, a nonfiction writer named Mary Roach, um, who's uh, pretty well known. And uh, I know her and she had written a book called Gulp. That's sort of about swallowed things, oddly enough. <laughs> and uh, I asked her, once I had this idea and the very next day when I woke up, I asked her, uh, she'd ever come across, uh, 
anyone who said that it would be possible to be swallowed by a whale. And she said, yes, I did. This one scientist, um, whale scientist. And so I talked to him and then he, he was excited by the idea and he hooked me up with other whale scientists. And so began just like endless hours of phone calls, Zooms, and trying to understand whale anatomy that I can't, I could barely grasp. Um, it was confusing, but uh, I got the, the, I got most of right. They always comforted me with the fact that sperm whales are extremely mysterious today, even. And so if I made mistakes, then virtually no one would know because you can't even really study them. When they, when they beach, they wash up on the shore. It's your, your only shot. Um, and then you've only got a limited amount of time before they have to get rid of the body. Um, so anytime a, a sperm whale washes up, calls go out and the scientists rush there to um, chop into it as much as they can and learn what they can before a few hours later it's got to go. Wow. Brennan, uh, any final questions before we wrap it up, man? No, I mean, I'm so, I, I'm so there for that book at, yeah. and, and to hear that uh, the process that went into writing and frankly, just, it sounds like you had a freaking blast, you know, learning all that stuff and putting it into play. Um, whenever, whenever I can tell that somebody enjoyed creating a piece of work, like for, for whatever reason, that makes me enjoy it all the more. Uh, yeah, I'm glad, man. I'm, I'm super psyched about that one. Can't wait. Uh, sorry, struggling. My e key just popped off. That's probably not good. Okay. It's yeah, pretty. That's it's an seven important year, key. <laughs> seven <laughs> years old. Had a good run. Uh, so Daniel, where can people follow you? Um, DanielKraus.com will have um all the required links. And do you have any final thoughts? Well, you know, I want to just shout out to uh. Uh, a couple books I've come out later this year. I've got one called Graveyard Girls, which is um, middle grade, um, written with Lisey Harrison, which is a, a fun sort of goosebumps type thing. Oh, nice. And then I've got another collaboration um, coming out in October called Wrath, which is really cool. And I wrote it with the, this brilliant um, geneticist named Sharon Moalam. And, uh, he kind of provided all the the science in it, which is insane. And it's about um, genetically modified pets. This company that makes, it's like very, very just slightly near future, like very slightly, a couple of years type slightly. Oh, wow. Um, it's a very like Michael Crichton type thing. Mm. Um, so it's a little bit like Jurassic Park, but kind of like rats. It's about um, uh, this, this pet rat that this company makes and edited these sort of edited Genetically edited pets are, are a reality, um, particularly in China. They don't have the same sort of rules we have here. And this is a, uh, a company that's making these new pet pets. They made a couple other pets, but now they're making this uh, rat that has human and uh, brain genes in it. And uh, the rats are also engineered to be super cute and super smart, and they communicate with a little touchpad. Um, and but they don't have a they're rushing the product out. It's sort of like an, an Apple situation. They're rushing the product out and they haven't figured out a way to turn off the brain growth yet. And then one of them gets, gets out. Um, and 
the brain is going to keep growing. It's going to keep getting smarter and smarter, but it's a flowers for Algernon type situation too, because the brain like it can get so big inside the skull and then it starts going insane. It's pressing against the skull. So if this rat were to multiply with a common New York street rat, um, then these rats would soon take over the entire city. And by our scientific estimations, um, everyone would have to move out of the, all cities in the world within just a few years. The, the, rats, <laughs> the rats would win. <laughs> it wouldn't be a fight. So that's coming out in October. It's called Wrath. Jesus, that's terrifying, cool. man. Yeah, that is. Uh, Brennan, any final thoughts? Uh, I would throw out, um, I saw you post a video earlier of opening what looked like a PR package for Graveyard Girls. Um, yeah. And it, it had some really, really cool looking stuff in there. That's a, a, a is that middle grade YA? Yeah. How would you that's, classify that's that? Middle grade. Yeah. Okay. So Very it's cool. kind of like, a, you know, middle grade, mostly middle grade girls who are trying to just go through the various dramas, but they also tell scary stories. So the middle of every book, like there's five of them. So this is the first book mm-hmm. and the middle of every book, roughly you can see there's a, there's a horror story they tell that sort of informs what's going on in their life. And the horror story in this first one, is just wild. It's basically about uh, uh, if you text too much, which these girls do, it's a, about the idea that the radiation from your, your phone will start growing these tiny little brains in your thumbs. <laughs> and then the thumbs all uh, start separating from the hands. And oh. like, a, like, a, like a thumb army. That's, uh, <laughs> Dude, that is fucking awesome. It's really fun. It's a really fun series. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. That um, looks cool. Beyond that, I would just say thank you very much for spending your Friday night with us. We really appreciate your time, man. No problem, man. It was fun. I thank you as well. And I got to know, who are the uh, Chicago whales? Oh, the Chicago whales. I bought this because of whale fall. <laughs> um, I got this at, I went to a Cubs game and across the street, because uh, I live in Chicago, there was a hat store and I was just killing time and I saw Chicago whales. And it turns out the Chicago whales were the very first team to play in Wrigley Field. Hmm. Um, they were, uh, they didn't last very long, just for a few years. They were part of a, a different baseball league, um, way back at the dawn of baseball. And then they, uh, they went away when like, the leagues like merged, hmm. they were a real team. That's, I don't know why the hell they're called the whales. There's no whales anywhere near here, but <laughs> I guess there's not a lot of bears either. <laughs> True. Yeah. For us, uh, the Boston area had a lot of, uh, they had a few baseball teams, um, but I don't remember what they're called. So. I always, I, I love that, um, whole conversation that came up where people got angry about the Cleveland Indians changing their name to the guardians. And the kind of counter that was like, dude, we've got two teams named after socks. <laughs> you can't really, you can't really say the guardians is a dumb name when we've got two teams named after socks. <laughs> The Red Sox and White Sox, yeah. yeah. Oh, and then there was the Black Sox. That's true. Three teams. Yeah. Um, what are you currently reading right now, man? I'm reading a science fiction book called Red Mars um, by Kim Stanley Robinson. Uh, I'm writing. Oh. A science, I'm writing a science fiction book right now. Really, my first straight science fiction. So I've been reading a bunch of sci-fi. Oh, very cool. What about you, Brennan? 
I just finished up this one. It is uh, Gwendolyn Keist's Reluctant Immortals. I I loved this book. I really liked it. Um, you know, I like Gwendolyn's work a lot, but uh, this was really something. And it's such an interesting concept. It takes place from uh, the viewpoint of uh, Lucy from Dracula um, and her roommate in 1960s San Francisco is uh, Bertha, the attic wife from Jane Eyre. And essentially they are on the run from Dracula and Mr. Rochester. And it's such a wacky concept. Um, and th- there is a lot of, you know, dark humor in there, but I, I mean, it's, it's very uh, heartfelt and it's kind of like um, psychologically scary at times. Um, I, I, I really, really enjoyed it. And I think that's coming out in about three or four weeks soon. Yeah. Yeah, I like London a lot, um, I've, and I've got that book. I just haven't read. Yeah, uh, Patrick, how about you? Um, so I'm about eighty percent through this book, Tommy, and the Order of the Cosmic Champions by Anthony Rapino and Anthony D. Greats. Uh, basically, just it's a young kid in the. Uh, actually, don't know if it's a. I think it's the '90s. Mm. Yeah, because it kind of has the '80s feel too. But basically, he's you'll see it in the cover. It's, you know, made as a fictional TV show that got canceled. That's now just a comic series and it's kid Tommy that gets bullied and it, he, he's one of the characters comes to life and he ends up basically not sure if this is just like his way of dealing with issues and he's OK with that or if it's really happening to him. Um, it's funny. It's, you know, a coming of age story. Um, so if you, you like that kind of thing, then that's definitely for you. The other one is uh, Wally Young. Man, that reflection, that glare yeah. is not welcoming. Uh, Wally Young's Magpie Coffin. Um, I'm listening to the audiobook of that. And for those that may not know, I am coming out with my first editorial debut with Death's Head Press. And Wally has a story within that world of Magpie Coffin. Uh, and it's excellent. So he'll have a sequel coming out soon. So keep your uh, eyes open for that. Um, yeah. Uh, next episode, 156, is with those guys, Anthony Rapino and Anthony the Greats. Stay tuned for that as well. And listeners and viewers, as always, you have many choices in podcasts. Thank you for picking up. Bye.